behind the net. Giordano playing it along on the near side. Camp can't get it out. Spun around to the far wing. Hall will get there, but unable to trap it. And now the Leafs do get it out. A two-on-one break. Miner in on goal. Drops it back. What a play. Holy Mackinac. What a play by Marner. And David Camp has nothing but a four-by-six to throw it into. Basically an empty netter for David Camp there. Mitch Marner doing all the work with a tremendous setup. Just one of the many points Marner had tonight. Three of them, in fact, in what is a 6-2 final for the Leafs on the road in Seattle. Justin Cuthbert is alongside me, Brent Gunning, Jim Ralph's favorite Leafs postgame host. <laughs> Don't let him tell you any differently. Uh, Joe Bo and Jim Ralph, of course, always doing a wonderful, wonderful job uh, on the broadcast. Love hearing them there. I love hearing them at the end and uh, love working with you, Justin. And I also love Leafs wins. So really tonight, just checking every box I could possibly conceive of. Yeah, and you got to love the form that we're seeing Mitch Marner in right now. I mean, that play at the end on the David Kampf goal, not really the end. I mean, uh, the game did drag on a little say, bit it felt like the end and then we were here for another hour <laughs> yeah, that, that, that felt like the decisive moment though and it was like it was so beautiful it was almost a little dangerous because mm-hmm. it's such an unnatural position to have a player just racing full speed into an empty net to hammer a puck home in in comp there and a nice round perfect stat line over the last 11 games for mitch marner with 11 goals and 11 assists in 11 games that would be something like a hundred and 64 point pace pretty good form right now for the maple leafs top winger look at you good quick math or you did math uh, before the show and ripped it off like that to make it sound like quick math uh, good good job by you i would never i would never uh, endeavor to do such a thing uh, my math skills are terrible when i have time to think about it let alone when i'm just off the uh, off the cuff there this is this has always been what's promised it's funny i was saying to you when the game was 4-1 it feels like the Panthers would be winning this game 9-1. All of a sudden, the 6-2 uh, scoreline we end up finishing with, it's a little more favorable to the Leafs. You know, I don't think this was by any means a complete beatdown domination. I think this was just clearly a Leafs team that has two things going for it. Infinitely more skill and talent and infinitely more structure. And it felt like even in what was a, I don't want to say sloppy, but not a perfect game by any means from the Leafs. They just, they, they carried the run of play to me. This was the furthest thing from a measuring stick game. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I think we learned a lot more about the Seattle Kraken, given that we're not watching every Kraken game because they haven't given us a reason to really tune in. Uh, but we learned about them rather than the Leafs. I mean, this at times had a beer league feel, honestly, mm-hmm. for good and bad. I mean, we mentioned the martyr goal. I mean, that's something you would see not executed in the same way, but when one team is clearly better Guys than the other think it looks like and that. you start Harlem Globetrottering <laughs> out there, but you know, at about half the speed of Mitch Marner, uh, you might see a goal that looks like that or with a goalie out of position, the way Chris Drieger was, was out of position because of Mitch Marner, but it was also beer leaguey in a way that it was bad. I mean, William Nylander's role in the first Seattle goal was beer leaguey. I mean, he just collected the puck, decided he wanted to regroup and softly tossed it airborne, into his own corner, hits a referee, and Seattle momentarily ties the game. Again, that seems like hours ago in the distant past, but there are a couple things that you probably didn't like, and I don't think Sheldon Keefe's going to come away from that game really loving what he saw because it was non-competitive, but there were also there, there were mistakes, and it wasn't perfection, and it wasn't the type of test that Carolina was about a week ago where you saw 
two clearly elite teams going at it and testing themselves. This was far from that. Yeah. It is always funny to, uh, to listen to Sheldon Keefe kind of play amateur psychologist a bit with his team, because I can easily see him taking the tack that you just mentioned there of, "Mm -mm, I know it's six, two, I can pick out this. I can pick out this. I can pick out this, but I can also look at a guy who has seen his team again. I know I've said it a million times, pump 50 shots in back-to-back games and lose both of them and say, Nope, you know what? I'm going to give him a slap on the back for the six, two win. And maybe, maybe, more importantly, even though I didn't love the last goal that, that got by him, you say Jack Campbell only led him to he stops 23 of 25. He did his job. I think I think that it's interesting because I think a coach probably should point at both of those things. But, you know, in the the tact he takes in the media, it's kind of interesting which one of those he'll highlight. Yeah, it was a get right game in many respects. Uh, was it the perfect get right game? Maybe not quite. I mean, Jack Campbell did give up the late goal, did give up two. I mean, you'd take that every time he certainly would in the win. But there was, and it's not all on him because we saw on that second goal that he gave up late in the game, little traffic in front, a defenseman sort of passing him. And that's kind of the way we've been seeing Mm -hmm. goals go in on Jack Campbell, at least a bunch of them or a few of them in the Calgary loss. Uh, So at a moment we saw Jack Campbell sort of applauding. He applauds his defenseman a lot after, after whistles. But I think at one point he was particularly happy about a clear out. And I think that's maybe something they're working on is making sure that Jack Campbell has eyes on the shooter. And of course, Jared McCann beats him and it wouldn't be a crack and leap game. I guess if Jared McCann didn't score a revenge goal, but you'd like to not have that one go in and get through that third period, which was again, non-competitive without giving up a goal, but get right for just about everyone, including Muzzin who broke a 28 game scoreless slump. Yeah. And we will, we'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, you mentioned McCann comes, comes through with the second crack and goal. Uh, so we got a McCann goal. We got a Kerfoot goal. And because everything has to really, really involve full circle, the guy who uh, was protected from Seattle, Justin Hall took the penalty uh, that the Leafs were serving. Well, uh, well, uh, Jared McCann got his goal. Cause and, why wouldn't it be? And no doubt Philip Hollander scored somewhere, <laughs> somewhere overseas tonight in Denmark in Sweden, wherever, uh, wherever he's plying his trade uh, these days, Brent gutting, Justin Cuthbert, we're applying our trade right here on sports. And five, nine of the fan and the Maple Leafs radio network Leafs nation post game will continue with you here, right on sports. And five, nine of the fan. Brent Gunning, Justin Cuthbert alongside me, walking you through what is a 6-2 win for the Leafs in their lone trip to visit the Seattle Kraken this season. Uh, plenty of different Leafs finding the back of the net. Alex Kerfoot, Michael Bunting, hey now, Andre Kasha, Mitch Marner, David Kampf, but the uh, maybe the most interesting goal scorer of the night and the least excited, definitely the least excited goal scorer of the night, Jake Muzzin, uh, an absolute bomb from the point. Timothy Lilligren setting him up on that. Also interesting that those two are playing together later in the game. We'll talk about that here as well. But uh, Muzzin, you know, he is not, he's not the most demonstrative guy. I think, I think stoic is a very apt word for him, but for a guy who doesn't score a ton of goals, and I know you don't want to be showboating in a, in a six, two, in a six, two win here, but there, there wasn't a hint of a smile or anything from Muzzin on that uh, right to business for him. I'm sure he's thrilled to get the goal though. Yeah, you said it, like, took out all of his frustration that we would assume is building up in what's been not weird year. a weird year. Not how he, it was a weird game. Like, yeah. I mean, we got hurt early <laughs> and right. now he's scoring a goal at the end. Like, it's really hard to keep track of what is happening in Jake Muzzin's world. But again, if he put all of his frustration behind that, he still kept us guessing because we got no emotion from him out of the re, uh, out of the goal celebration or lack thereof. So Jake Muzzin's just keeping Leafs Nation on their toes. Like, we just don't we don't know if he's ready for the playoff, like if he's just 
waiting to overcome an injury. Well, I almost or put him on LTIR he, earlier today. Yeah, so. yeah, he needs a new defense partner. That's <laughs> what he thinks he needs. Like, we just don't know what's going on in his world. But the main characters in the hockey operations side of things and Kyle Dubas and Sheldon Keefe, well, they seem to think that he's going to be just fine when it matters the most. Uh, and maybe that is indeed the case. And we're just going to have to keep guessing until then. Yeah, that, that's what it's going to be. And I think something we've been guessing about all season long is what exactly is the blue line going to look like? You know, Justin Hall and him, they were such an important pair for, for this team last season. And they've got a ton of run to figure it out this year. But it just it just has not worked. Whatever whatever the thing that allowed them to click so well, and and it is a fair thing to point out, well, when you only have to figure out how to defend against six other teams, that does really, really help you. But, you know, Justin Hall and him and Jake Muzzin just haven't been that pair this year. Late in the game, uh, we see Lilligren up there. Now, I'm sure part of that, I don't know, maybe you're upset with the penalty Hall takes, and maybe it's a little demotion in that regard. Maybe it is, you know, we know Keefe is unafraid. It's funny when, when I, or at least this is how I think of it. When a four, when a coach gets the blender going with the forward lines, I think, oh, look at this creativity. Look at the mixing and matching, trying to concoct something, make something work. And then whenever I see a coach mixing and matching on the blue line, it's immediately who's he not happy with who is not doing their job. Cause it does feel like that's, that's what you read into it when it's deep hairs getting shaken up. That's a great point. I've never really thought of it that way, but just clicked for me. <laughs> when, when you mix up the forward pairings, like, Oh wow. Innovation. Like we've got to see something different here because who knows when there'll be an injury and we need mm-hmm. a combination to step up. But when it happens with the defense core, it's because someone made a mistake. Someone's <laughs> got to sit on the bench for a little while because it just isn't working at least here and now. And, you know, we've seen experimentation, but it's mostly um, forced or required because there is an injury or there is a uh, complete downturn in play by one of these defensemen. So it, it is interesting that you make that point. And I don't know exactly what we saw. We, might have to wait for Sheldon Keefe to explain it to us at some point. Although I don't know if we're going to get that out of him tonight, but again, it seems like they're all searching for something on the back end. And Justin Hall in particular, I singled out William Nylander earlier, maybe a bit unfair because Mm -hmm. there was a lot of good in this game. And that second line that has been struggling a little bit at five and five did produce two five on five goals, which is fantastic. Um, But if there was someone who was the picture of a little bit of sloppy play, especially in the defensive zone, it was probably once again, Justin Hall. Yeah, he, he was, and there were just a few moments, and, you know, it's funny, there, you know, you and I were sitting here watching the game together, you pick out little plays, and even plays that he was able to work his way out of, it just, it, it felt like by the skin of his teeth, like he had to do a Houdini-esque escape just to make the smart, safe play, and, you know, credit to him for doing that at times, but it's just, it's a guy who's clearly been fighting it, you know, it's it's so funny, for so long in this market, we had the conversations about the blue line and you actually didn't, you know, you didn't love what was at the bottom, but that wasn't the problem. The problem was always, man, if you could just get Morgan Riley a partner. And I think in hindsight, you know, maybe Ron Haynes, he wasn't the worst partner for, for him at times, but now you've finally got that and you can finally set and forget your top pair. And I know people will quibble and say, Oh, that's not a Victor Hedman. You know, okay. There's much like there's only 10 number one centers. There's only like six number one D men in the league or guys we think of that way. That's a number one D pair. And you finally have that here. And the, it, it seems like I'm not going to say the second, because I thought Riley and Brody were great last season as well, but pretty much as soon as you find that everything beneath it, I don't want to say starts to crater. Cause I have actually liked a lot of the moments you've seen from Lilligren, from Sandine, even from Dermot this season, 
but it just feels like it's been kind of building on quicksand beneath that top pair since you found the partner for Riley. Well, when you found the partner for Riley, you knew you had this, the guy who could anchor the second unit. And that of course is Jake Muzzin. That's why there's so much attention on Jake Muzzin and so much speculation around what's happening and, and what might be the cure to whatever's ailing him, whether it be something that's psychological or physical or just time, time getting the better of him. So we don't know exactly what that is, but when you, as you mentioned, when you got something and you have an established top pairing, again, not the most dominant defense pairing in the world, but a, a defensive pairing that does its job in a system extremely well. But when that second piece went, and when Justin Hall, who's inextricably linked to that second piece, or at least was last year, mm-hmm. in order to be the positive influence at $2 million or wh- whatever, uh, you know, you want to classify him as a fourth defenseman. Once that dropped, threw the whole thing into a bit of chaos here. Yeah, it really has. And and again, I think the the interesting element of all this is... You know, he he maybe hasn't taken the monstrous leap that I think some people were, if not expecting, hoping for. But I don't know. Rasmus Sandin's given you everything you could have asked for this season, I thought. I think the only thing holding him back from kind of taking that leap, and, you know, I understand why it hasn't happened, is that well, Jake Muzzin's the second pair lefty. Like, there is, there, and there is a, absolutely a world where he has, Sandin, I'm talking about, has a little more responsibility, and we feel, like, even better about him than we already do. And it's just, that's the interesting thing to me about, about what you've seen out of this blue line this year is, you know, Lilligren, he's been so hot and cold for me. There's been nights I've loved his game, there have been nights I really haven't liked it. You know, Dermot, kind of in the same regard like that. But Sandine is just filled in so perfectly in that. And I think that's another kind of frustrating tenant of this is just, and, you know, I know so many people have seen it out there of saying, why does it have to be this way? But they both shoot left. Like, you cannot play Sandine and, and Muzzin together. It just doesn't work. They both need to play the left side. And it's just, man, if you could get those two together, it, it feels like they would sync up perfectly. Exactly. And you mentioned, like, even Riley not being headman in that, okay, you can put him with anyone and they're going to dominate. Mm-hmm. Few defensemen can be put in any pairing and dominate. And Rasmus Sandin seems like the sort of defenseman who will hit his ceiling when he's paired with someone like Jake Muzzin. Mm-hmm. Like, I believe That's he so can true. be a second pairing defenseman, but can he be... He can thrive in sheltered minutes on the third pair. But can he move up in the absence of Muzzin, play with someone like Justin Hall, and thrive? I don't think so. It's it, these, these defensemen, you know, in a perfect world, they're not. But they are kind of defined in a way that puts them into a box given what, what their playing partner might yeah. be. Like, he is that type of defenseman who pairs well with this type of defenseman. Defenseman B, if you want to call it that. <laughs> And right now, as you mentioned, they're saturated a bit on the left side in terms of like the quote unquote, you know, a chair. Yeah. If that, if to want to, to use a radio analogy, yeah, no. like all the a chairs are on the left side. It's you true. found one complimentary pairing for the top unit. You had one last year in, in the second unit and you're still searching for it. I think with Rasmus Sandin. Yeah, you are. You, you absolutely are. And again, you know, Lilligren and him, I've liked at times. They obviously have a ton of chemistry, but it's just how much can you trust two defensemen who the oldest of whom I think is, is 23 years old. 
you know, if they're Kel McCarr, a lot. But if they're just about anybody else, uh, not not a ton. And you have to you have to earn that trust, and it's a hard hard thing to do in this league. Uh, you mentioned the second line there. Uh, some some better things out of them tonight. William Nylander. Uh, if you're just going off the score sheet, uh, you like his game. Uh, we'll break that down as well. A uh, few more things to get into before we wrap things up here on Leafs Nation post game. Brent Gunning alongside Justin Cuthbert here. Keep listening on Sportsnet Five Nine of the Fan. Brent Gunning, Justin Cuthbert, walking you through what was a convincing 6-2 win for the Leafs in Seattle. Uh, plenty of players finding the score sheet in this one. Mitch Marner, uh, we mentioned it when it happened. Uh, we should probably mention it again. 400 points uh, on his career. Uh, he got that after the power play goal uh, the, this evening. He tacked on another for good measure. Uh, the only guys who have got to 400 as a Leaf faster than him, Doug Gilmore, Matt Sundin, Austin Matthews, and my personal favorite Leaf, uh, Sillaps. Those are those are the guys who uh, who beat uh, beat Marner to 400 points uh, as a Leaf. You're Not always, a long list. You're always reminiscing about those days with uh, Sillaps dominating for the Toronto Maple Leafs. <laughs> yeah, it's it's you know they don't they don't come around often, obviously. But you have two doing it at about the same time. I think Marner 20 games behind yeah. Austin Matthews, so I guess he'd be a little ahead in terms of the games that he's played in his career to this point. But coming in together, doing it together, and forming one of the best lines in hockey. It's special to have those two hitting these numbers and 500 will come soon enough. Yeah, it, it will right around the corner. Hmm, 500, uh, Sidney Crosby, please don't score tomorrow. So I could potentially be in the building for 500, uh, on Thursday. Um, not 500, uh, but two, two assists tonight, uh, for William Nylander. He, he had the boo-boo on his first goal. I, I think it was, it's a very easy play to jump on Nylander for specifically cause it's Nylander. And if you have any of that, like muscle memory left in you, but it was a little lackadaisical. Uh, I thought he bounced back. Uh, you know, he gets a couple of helpers. I, I liked where he was on some of the Leafs goals. I I'm pretty sure he was, he was screening on the first or second or on the, yeah, on the first goal that it was for Kerfoot. Um, you know, this is a guy, him and Tavares have a ton of chemistry. They play well together, but the team needs a little more from them. So I think just kind of getting some points can go a long way for a guy like him. Was it vintage William Nylander where he's averaging a breakaway a game and <laughs> at his very best forming that combination with John Tavares? Maybe not quite, but again, two five on five goals for that line. And when they are at their best, it seems like they're all making a special play in the offensive zone that leads to a goal. And you mentioned on the first, it was another one of those passes in the high slot where John Tavares is just distributing uh, pucks to either his winger or a, a defenseman who's being activated. In this case, it was Alex Kerfoot. And as you mentioned, William Nylander was out front doing the dirty work. And I think he grabbed a secondary assist on the Muzzin goal. So yep. for him to be involved in two goals, for that line to strike twice at five on five, when it's been the subject of some consternation over the over the past few uh, few weeks and maybe a month now, Again, we're talking about get right games. Second line got right a little bit tonight. Yeah, definitely. Um, let's just finish with some rapid fire Leafs appreciation here. You mentioned John Tavares. He, we, we talked about this a little bit after I believe it was the Vancouver game. This is just a guy who's so comfortable working in extremely tight areas with bodies just kind of draped all over him. He made a great play to set up Sandine in the Detroit game. Uh, that's what vintage John Tavares looks like now. This is not the guy from his Long Island days, but he's definitely finding a way to be as an effective player as possible. And a guy that can contribute on what is the league's best power play. I mean, they Stop have, forget, we've, yeah. we've been talking about the configuration of the power play ad nauseum for years now. And it seems like they found their best selves right now under Spencer Carberry. 
And I think a lot of that had to do with roles. And I think all the men have been working to define those roles. And John Tavares has sort of mastered his role in the offensive zone where he is that expert distributor with his two skates planted deep into the ice. So no one else can move him on the puck. And if we are hanging, handing out adulation or accolades, 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 what I'm looking for, Jason Spezza, let him, let him, what I wanted, let him run that second power play forever. uh, Because that was another beautiful setup for him. Oh, that's exactly where I wanted to finish. Uh, Jason Spezza. I don't know how many times he's done exactly that in his NHL career, I don't know if 400 is a, is a low number or a high number. It's in my brain because of what Marner did tonight, but he's going to keep doing that uh, as long as he's playing in the NHL Leafs back in the win column with a six, two win in Seattle. The Leafs will be back at home on Thursday against the Penguins. I'll be there. Gord Stellick will be back. Justin, tons of fun. Thank you so much for hanging out with me the past couple nights. Most importantly though, thank you for listening. It's been Leafs nation post game on sports net five, nine of the fan and the Maple Leafs radio network.